morning, everybody. Thank you, Kelly, for reading that scripture for us this morning. Two weeks ago, we spoke about uh, Daniel's prayer um, to the Lord, and it's a, it's a wonderful example to us and a reminder for us of how the Lord would have us to pray. And this week, we're going to talk about the answer that God gave to Daniel. And this is a, is a difficult answer. Daniel 9, 24-27 is, is probably one of the more confusing passages in Scripture. Um, commentators that I was reading, he said, uh, when you're trying to read through all the interpretations of the text, it's like wandering around in a dismal swamp. And I don't know if you've ever actually wandered around or gone through a swamp, but I prefer to go around them. They're usually filled with mosquitoes, at least in Canada, and, and uh, mud and water. It's just, I don't know, it's not pleasant. And sometimes, if we're honest, I think that parts of the Bible may feel kind of like a swamp. You want to go around it and avoid it, and uh, we don't, we don't, yeah, it's difficult to, to understand. Um, but even in a swamp, I'm going to actually have to share a screen here because I have some PowerPoint, but um, uh, see if this works. I don't know if it's going to. Okay, PowerPoint's working, but... Even in a swamp, um, there is beauty. The sun shines, then some of the flowers that grow in the, the swampy areas can be uh, more beautiful than ones that grow in other places. I don't have pictures of flower up on the PowerPoint, but I was just reminded that um, no matter how confusing parts of the Bible may seem, no matter how much they might seem like a swamp or a desert, there's, there's truth and there's, there's beauty there that the Lord uh, wants to teach us. And so my desire for us this morning is that we be able to take a step back and, uh, and see what God wants to say to his people, even while we have to humbly admit that we don't understand it all, that I don't understand it all. So what truth do we see in this confusion? We learn that the Messiah, God's anointed, was coming in God's perfect timing. You know, Daniel probably thought that in answer to his prayer, the people of Israel would go back to Israel and that God's blessing would be upon them. And, you know, things might be a little difficult, but things would be be good, right? But God actually told him that there were going to be hard times ahead, troubled times. And yet, his anointed one was coming. And looking back, we know that Jesus Christ has come. And we can look forward to the time that he is coming again. This side of the cross 
we look we wait and we look forward to the completion of what Christ has already completed where he said that it is finished on the cross and so Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 to 27 is a real encouragement for us as God's people to trust in the promised anointed one and to trust God's timing in it all. So I'm going to read again the passage because the more confusing a passage, the more we should spend time actually looking at it and reading it rather than going around the swamp. So Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And so Ari, you might notice, Kelly just read it in a, in a different translation, and, and there's already some differences and maybe some confusion of what does that mean. I don't want to overwhelm you with here's all these 20 opinions. There's like, there's over 100, I think. But... There are really three main views that people have, and I think it would help us to uh, just briefly hear them um, so that we can hopefully see the truth in the middle of, of the confusion. I don't have all the answers for you, but I think we can uh, see the truth that God wants His people to be uh, encouraged with and strengthened by. So the three kind of main views, I'll put them up there in my short summary, but some believe the prophecy refers to the time of a, of a king named Antiochus. I talked about him uh, in Daniel chapter 8, because parts of Daniel seem to refer to Antiochus, and they refer to, it talks about the history of, of Babylon and Persia and Greece. Um, but I'll be honest, Antiochus, when we look at history, it just doesn't seem to fit with with what this text is saying. And some people uh, want to make it all fit into the past. They want to make it all... Um, in fact, some people, the biggest people that believe this view are those that say Daniel wasn't written as prophecy, but it was written after the fact. And so it's a very... Um, the kind of the view of many liberal scholars who don't really believe that in prophecy. And, uh, but there's, so there's not really a lot of, uh, 
support for this view. But some people believe it. The second is that some believe the prophecy refers to the coming of Christ. We know that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and so they look at the anointed one and uh, say that it refers to his sacrificial work, and then the destruction of Jerusalem following his rejection. And the strength of this view is that it, it points to Jesus. There's the focus on the gospel and what God has done in history, because we know he did destroy Jerusalem, just as, as um, even Jesus prophesied would happen. And the other view is that it refers to both the first and second coming of Christ. And in this view, Christ is the center still, but we know that some things we're waiting for the completion of. And so um, it would look at parts of this prophecy and say that some of it seems to be yet to come. For example, Christ came to atone for sin, but has sin been completely brought to an end? Or we are righteous in Christ, but the kingdom of righteousness does not reign over all the earth. And so the strength of this view is that it it looks at what Christ has done on the cross, what he's completed, and then it, and it encourages us to look forward to what he's going to um, continue to do when he comes back, we'll see the completion of all he has promised. Both the second and the third view are biblical-based. They're focused on the importance of Christ. And so um, you can get into a lot of debate or everybody has, it's got to be this way. But I think there's a lot of uncertainty there, but the one common denominator is that we see that the anointed one is is sort of that he's the center, Jesus Christ. Um, uh, yeah, verse twenty four is a probably my favorite verse in this text. Maybe simplifies what's going on. It's kind of an overview of what God's going to accomplish during these seventy uh, periods of seven. Is not talking about literal weeks, um, but seems to be symbolic for a period of seven seven years, each week being seven years. And th- this is something that was decreed by God. He said, in these 77s, I am going to accomplish these six things. And so they're very wonderful promises that we have. And uh, those six things are to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy. Now, uh, what do these things mean? Uh, What could they possibly be referring to? Well, the first two, um, because there's this view there's the view that it was all fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, and there's the view that it was the first, it's the first and second coming. And so there's two interpretations of this, and I, I think it is um, it's difficult to know which. Both of them are biblical, though. One is that 
We know that Christ, the Word of God says, He has put away our sin when we have believed in Christ through what He has done on the cross. And so by one offering of Himself, Jesus has perfected before God those who are sanctified. And so it could be that it is referring to that, what Jesus has done on the cross. He's taken away our sin. Or it could refer to a complete and final end to sin when all the sin and rebellion on this earth is, is brought to an end at the return of Jesus. And, uh, and so those are the two options. The third one is to atone for iniquity. This is one that I think very clearly points to what has been accomplished on the cross. There's no other way or there's no other place where uh, God could forgive sin without being untrue to his, his own righteousness if it wasn't for Jesus. As 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Apart from this, there is no atonement. There is no covering. There is no taking away of our sin. And so... Uh, I think it's important that we see this as fulfilled in Christ. And that uh, especially in this uh, area, he is the, the center. The next one to bring in everlasting righteousness is, there's again, there's these two options. It could refer to justification. That is the righteousness we have as a gift in Christ. Or it could refer to the hope we have of a new heavens and new earth where perfect righteousness dwells. And uh, both of these, again, are um, very scriptural and wonderful hope that we have. So if there's anything we know, it is that in Jesus Christ, uh, we have um, a great hope and a promise that we know that the Lord will uh, keep where he is faithful the vision and the prophet uh, sealed is the next one. And uh, some have said, well, seal sometimes, to seal away something means to shut away. And so some think that it refers to the um, God is shutting up something until the future when he will yet reveal it. Um, but seal has another meaning. In fact, the more common meaning is like what we would do as a stamp, like a stamp of approval upon the vision and the prophet. And what would that look like? A stamp of approval on the visions and the prophets. And I think ultimately, again, we can see this fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who put the stamp of approval on all the word of the, the prophets and all of the visions, and upon the law, through his death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, we have the guarantee that what he has done on the cross 
will be brought to completion. We have the guarantee, the promise of the Spirit fulfilled, the promise of His return, the promise of righteousness, of hope, of salvation, and uh, in Jesus Christ. And so that would be how I think it is again reminding us of uh, the great hope and and uh, joy we have in the Anointed One, in the Messiah. The last one is is the most holy would be anointed. And what is the most holy in Scripture? Well, the temple, uh, certainly what there was a place, there was the holy place and there was the most holy. And so many have talked about the temple. Um, and uh, verse 27 talks about on the wing of the temple, there might be abominations. That's an interpretation. There's different views on that. We also have the gospel's testimony again of someone, the Messiah, greater than the temple, who is here. The Holy One of Israel who came to dwell among men and the disciples, the apostles, bore witness that they had seen his glory. And so again, I think the strongest support for this is to see uh, this is fulfilled in Christ, who really is the most holy of holy. There are other thoughts on there. So I guess what I have been pointing to in, in talking about these things is really the, the thought that these are all fulfilled in Christ in some way or another, whether it is at the cross or at his return, uh, even if I thought about this, um, if the seal and the vision and the prophet is sealed until the time of the future, I was reminded of Revelation 5 and who opened the scroll. And ultimately, it's the Lamb of God who was slain. He's the only one worthy to open up the scroll, the time of the end. And, and, uh, and so I think that Christ is the center the Messiah who's promised of God. Um, and the more that I study, the less I kind of see the swamp of uh, all the different ideas out there, and the more I'm drawn to the beauty of the gospel. The most amazing part of, about this vision to me is that is what God has already done for us on the cross. That he bore our sins upon the tree was cut off for our sake. And it's because of the cross that we can rejoice in the hope of the complete redemption that is to come. We can look forward to what he will continue to do even in our lives today. And so, I'm going to quote uh, from Joyce Baldwin, an Old Testament scholar, wrote, If we may tentatively, and I think tentatively is a good word to use here, if we may tentatively interpret the verse, it's speaking of the accomplishment of God's purpose for all history. If we look at this from our vantage point, it was accomplished in the coming of Christ, but it is still yet to be consummated in, in some sense. 
and uh, was reminded of Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, which says that according to his purpose, the Lord's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And this is our ultimate hope, whether um, Daniel is exactly speaking of it or, or not. Uh, he is certainly speaking of, of Jesus Christ. Um, so how's that for an overview of one verse? There's a lot to think about, I think. Uh, there's a lot that's uncertain, but I think that um, Jesus Christ is the center. And through the cross, all these things are accomplished. Though we, we know that we are in a place where we still await the return of the Messiah. Okay, um, so... The next three verses kind of divide up the 77s. We have the first 70, 69 sevens, and we have the beginning of the final seven in verse 26, and then we have the, the final seven in more detail. And that's simplifying it, but I think it helps us to understand that. So, um, uh, yeah, and I think it's important we realize that there's not really a way to match up these dates uh, for with certainty. Some have said it must be symbolic. Some have said it could be a rounded number. Others are quite firm that it is to exactly to the date uh, of whether it's some say to Jesus' birth or Jesus' death or his resurrection or all these different views. And we really have no way of knowing precisely because everybody's dates are different. There have been people that have claimed the they know the exact date of the return of Jesus based on their calculations, and I forget which years, I don't know, 1988 or something I heard, and that didn't happen, and probably somebody's got a, a idea for 2020. Um, it's just dangerous to do that. This is the Lord's timing. His ways are higher than our ways. Having said that, I think that the most reasonable way to view it is to see as it as coming up to the the time of Jesus Christ and uh, I think the numbers do match up pretty well there we just can't be certain of exactly to the date uh, kind of thing and this this 70 weeks began there was a, a word that was going to go out for the restoration of Jerusalem this is what Daniel had just been praying about is Jeremiah had prophesied that in 70 years God was going to bring his people back and so King Cyrus the king of Persia decreed that the people of Israel might go back to their land and rebuild their homeland and this had been has been fulfilled but Daniel learns something more. He learns that for seven uh, periods of seven, Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. And then there's going to be another 62 periods of seven where the people of Israel were going to experience troubled times as they waited for the promised anointed one. In verses, verse 26... In 27, uh, 
describe for us this, uh, this, uh, the coming of the anointed one and the last week, what has been called Daniel's 70th week, um, or 70th seven. It's the most controversial, but I think it begins with one of the most magnificent reminders of the gospel. Because it says, <clears throat> after the 62, that an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Or as some translations say, an anointed one shall be cut off, but not for himself. The language of substitutionary atonement there. And we got to remember, look back at 24, God had decreed during the 70 weeks that sin would be atoned for. Now, when did that take place? What is the only place in time in history that fits when and where or who could atone for sin? And it is Jesus Christ who is the promised Messiah, the anointed one who was cut off so that we might be saved. Isaiah 53:5 says, "But we were pierced for our he was pierced, sorry, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Then verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Second Corinthians 5.21 for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Apart from this, all of our hope for the future is, what is it? It's nothing, for we stand uh, condemned under the wrath of God, apart from Jesus Christ. And so, even if we never fully understand eschatology, we don't get the study of end times, we can know that the Messiah came, that he died for our sins, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And this is the foundation of all our hope. In fact, this is the foundation of our hope that Jesus Christ will return. Hebrews 9 verse 8 says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so we wait, and we wait because we know what Christ has done, what the Messiah has done for us. Mm. Oh, we'll stay there. 
as we move on, verse uh, 26 continues and talks about the people of the prince who is to come. It says they will destroy the city, uh, a flood, there be war, desolations. Basically what this verse is saying is that some enemies would come and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And in, in 70 AD, this very thing happened under the Roman general Titus, who destroyed the city of Jerusalem, besieging it, and, um, and the temple was completely wiped out. And so we, we see there, too, that God uh, has been keeping his promises. Now, that is not to say that there is not more or that there is things that we don't understand. Many people would say that this must happen again in the future. Uh, now, there's nothing in the text that says that there's going to happen uh, many years later, or there's some sort of a gap or anything like that. There's nothing there to tell us. But there are parts of, especially verse 27, talks about a strong covenant, one who makes desolate, um, and these things could perhaps be referring to the future. Uh, Revelation talks about covenants made in the future and desolations yet to come. But I don't think there's any way of understanding that here and now. Uh, when we look forward and don't look back. Uh, it's not really clear, is Daniel referring to what... What revelation is revelation looking back at what Daniel's talking about. Um, but what is clear is when we, we know the God of, of the Bible, we know that he is in time, he's on time every single time in history, even if we don't understand his timing just yet. But um, Jesus did have something to say along these lines about Daniel, and I would like to talk a little bit about what he said. Um, he quoted Daniel uh, 11.31, and what he said in Matthew 24.15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Uh, what was Jesus talking about when he quoted Daniel? Uh, well, in Matthew 24, Jesus was talking about two things, actually, which makes it confusing. He had just prophesied that the, the disciples that were talking about how beautiful the temple was. They were praising the temple, and Jesus kind of redirected their attention. He said, um, the temple stones in a few short years are not going to remain on uh, on top of each other. Temple was going to be destroyed, and uh, and so the disciples were like very interested in this. They were they were kind of wanting to know a little bit more because the temple wasn't such an important part of uh, being Israelite. They didn't understand. So they came to him privately, verse, uh, 24, verse 3. So tell us, when will these things be? In other words, when will the temple be destroyed? 
And they also asked, And what will be the sign of your coming into the end of the age? Well, we know the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And yet, Jesus didn't come back. And so, that's part of what makes Matthew difficult. And that's part of what makes Daniel difficult. If, if Jesus is referring to Daniel, then he must see its fulfillment in, in this somehow. But... Uh, which one is he referring to? Is he talking about 70 AD? Is he talking about the future when he comes again? Is he talking about both? You really have all those options. And I'm kind of going to leave you with the fact that I don't know if we can answer that for certain. I don't think we can answer it definitively. That's why we have different opinions. But I think becoming okay with not knowing it is something that uh, we all have to come grip to grips with at some point. And we can be okay with not always knowing because we do know uh, what Christ has done for us on the cross, because we do know the hope of his return. And, uh, and so, uh, you know what? We're in good company. The martyrs in heaven don't fully understand God's timing. Revelation 6 verse 9 tells us that they are crying out. They're asking God, Lord, vindicate us, return. Uh, and uh, um, they wanted to see righteousness and justice. And they were told uh, to rest. To rest and to wait for God's timing. In this case, until the full number of their brethren would be martyred. I think it's a pretty helpful application for all of us to be patient. Being patient doesn't mean giving up. But it means that we rest in what God has done. We know what he has done. And we trust that he knows what he is doing today. Because he's working even when we don't understand what is going on. And so, uh, whatever the exact details, Daniel's vision is looking past the present and future troubles of God's people. And those troubles are real and unpleasant. And he points us to the coming of God's anointed. And just as the people of Israel were to trust God in the troubled times they faced, they were to look forward to the coming of the Messiah, we too as God's people wait in hope for the Messiah's return. Think that Jesus' words of application ring true today. He knew what he was talking about. Luke 21, verse 34, he tells us to watch, lest our hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Stay awake, praying that you have strength to escape all these things and to stand before 
the Son of Man. There's no pat answer for living the Christian life. Just as there's no easy way of understanding this passage. And maybe maybe this is too cliche for you guys. But that last song we sang, it was it was true of what it, what it said. That Jesus is the answer. That he's the one solution to every fear. And he's the rock on which we stand, even when we don't understand it all. The answer is found in seeking the Messiah. Making him our highest joy. Considering him our greatest treasure. And so when the longing of our heart is for the return of the promised Messiah, we can wait with hope. And we can long for his return because we remember what he has accomplished on the cross. It is a sure thing. It is a done deal. It is guaranteed. And we can toil and strive, and yes, that's what it is often here now, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all, especially of those who believe. 1 Timothy 4.4 4. I want to conclude with a prayer. Lord, may we as God's Chosen people put our trust in Jesus, the anointed one promised by God. May we trust in your perfect timing. As we wait for you to finish what Christ has already completed at the cross. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, the name that is above all names. Amen.